Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, on this week's episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by longtime professional goaltender Jeff Glass. He has an incredible story. In 2017, Jeff won his NHL debut with the Chicago Blackhawks, 13 years after being drafted by the Ottawa Senators. Before it happened, he spent time in the ECHL, AHL, and seven years in Russia before coming back to North America for another shot at the show. Enjoy. All right, well, Jeff Glass, welcome to the podcast on Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. I'm really happy to have you because we're just a couple of relics that have been around, been all over the place. I'm sure we got tons in common, but we've never talked to each other really beyond a brief meeting at Center Ice. And I think really maybe even in Binghamton years and years ago when we were first right out of major junior for you and college for me. So let's start at the beginning of this. How'd you end up becoming a goalie? You're from Calgary in the first place, right? Were you from a big hockey family? What made you end up in the net? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on. Like you said, it's it's so weird actually finally getting to talk to you because everybody assumes we've, we've had similar career paths that uh, we should know everything about each other. But for whatever reason, we've never really connected. So, no, I appreciate you having me on. Um, yeah, hockey, right from the beginning. Well, grew up in Calgary, so you know how that goes, right? Canadian kid. Um, hockey's religion here for us so I grew up uh, with a couple younger brothers uh, but didn't come from my dad never played professionally or anything like that so I was I was raised just kind of like your uh, your standard Canadian kid where uh, went to the rink every day and, and and learned how to play tried to play all the positions and um, it, it didn't take me long to realize that I wanted to be a goalie. So what sold you on the position because sometimes when you have younger brothers that's the odd one. It's usually not that case. It's usually that the younger brother ends up being the goalie because the older brother said, hey, kid, get in there. So what drew you to the position? Yeah, I, I think for me it was um, I enjoyed being on the ice. And I know that's uh, a little bit cliche, but it was always I, I loved being on the ice and I hated coming off and changing. I hated uh, the whole, you know, playing all the positions, skating up and down the ice. When I was in net, I, I could A, catch my breath, and B, I got to be out there the whole time. So um, that was the initial draw, I think. And then once we started getting into equipment and all the perks that came with being a goalie, I really realized that, hey, this this is pretty cool. And uh, it, it really took on a life of its own. And uh, it was a young age. I was going to say I was six or seven years old where they wanted uh, you to start playing all the positions. And then and then they wanted you to start deciding, hey, if you're going to be a goalie, like you got to be the goalie now. and We're not going to let you rotate around. And I think I was about seven years old when I decided, yep, no, I, I want to be just the goalie, and, and that's what it was. Were there any goalies from your era that you looked up to and kind of idolized, guys with the Flames or anybody else throughout the National Hockey League? Yeah, there was – well, and that's that's a good point. There was I was very lucky to play in Calgary or grow up in Calgary, and uh, Trevor Kidd had a goalie school here, and I'll never forget it. He was he was an idol growing up. So I, I got to go to his goalie school every summer, and um, – with that being said, his backup at the time was Rick Tabaracci, and I'll never forget him either. And we had, you know, Curtis Joseph just up, just up the highway too in, in Edmonton. So um, between those guys, those were kind of my idols growing up, and I always looked up to them. And um, it, it was really cool having those kind of figures uh, that close to home. So when I was 13, we went to Calgary with my Pee Wee Quebec team, and we played in the Crow Child Tournament up there. Nice. And- I don't know whether that was a big deal or not, but to us coming from St. Louis, it felt like it. We're going to Canada a second time. It was like this tack-on tournament at the end that was really cool. But we got to tour Calgary's locker room. And I remember walking in there, and I'm like head-to-toe blue sweatpants and everything. And <laughs> there's Trevor Kidd stall, though. And he's got about 10 different gloves and blockers, but it had all that – like all the flames on it. You know, like he had like just sick equipment. And that's the first thing I remembered was how – like unique his style was i mean did that influence you as a kid like thinking i gotta get gear like him too 100 percent. And, and when he showed up to camp I, I remember thinking wow like 
this guy's a big guy. He looks like an athlete. He, he looked like a superstar, like just a celebrity in every sense of the word. But the, but the first thing I wanted to get to was his gear. I was curious if he brought his pads with him, and he did. And uh, he let us all try him on and, and play with him. And it, there was nothing cooler. There really wasn't. And watching, I think at the time, and I don't want to throw him under the bus, but those things must have been like 40 inches tall. And, and you know, they came up right to my chin because they were so big. But uh, it, was, it was so cool because they were just these big, bright colored pads and i was like i want to wear those i i need a set of those just like those and um yeah that was definitely a huge influence on on uh some of my gear and some of the reason why i wanted to play goalie moving forward i think he was really one of the first guys that took custom design to the next level though you know think about think about before him like it was pretty generic what guys would have you'd have the front of the pad with just the blocky design but like he took it way off the chart by going with that flame man it was to me that was just the coolest thing you look back at it now and like even guys in today are still trying to get custom graphics on their pads. And like, that was, that was a long time ago and, and he right. had it dialed right in at then. So, um, it really was way ahead of his, his time. And, um, yeah, credit to Brian's credit to him, credit to anybody that was involved in that. Cause, um, it was cool. And I think that changed the way a lot of goalies looked at goalie equipment and the position. Imagine when that order form came across to the guys at Brian's. <laughs> like, you uh, want us to do what with this? <laughs> but I bet they were pretty excited about it. I mean, it was unique, but it took you, uh, you know, you're pretty young getting into junior hockey. What was the route to get there? Were you always super good at your position? Was it a process getting to that level? How'd you end up getting a major junior? Yeah, it's actually a fun story that I don't get to tell very often, but I, was, I wasn't very good at all, and I, I never, ever played on the top teams. And um, anybody that grew up playing with me knew I was always on the three or the four team, and uh, there was at least two or three goalies that were better than me growing up. And uh, it wasn't until probably midget hockey that I got to play on a double-A team and um, finally got to make the double-A team, and I was so excited about it. And sure enough, we I think we went like 2-28 and 28 that year, and I didn't have either of the wins. And and it was one of the best things that could have happened for me uh, as a goalie. I just I, I got pummeled every single night, but I got shots, and I got to play. And I, and I had some soul-searching moments, and even at a young age, it's like, do you want to do this? Do you really want to be that guy that's, uh, you know, the, the goat in the net and is this something you want to do? And I really did. And I knew that there could be a light at the end of the tunnel if I stuck with it. And uh, sure enough, I did. So rather than going back the next year and playing midget AAA, I actually moved on to tier two junior and I played junior A in Crow's Nest Pass. And uh, it was a great opportunity. It was a coach that kind of took a, a flyer on me. And there was three of us 16-year-olds that were uh, trying to figure life out as a 16-year-old moving away from home for the first time. But uh, it was it was a perfect experience for us because we got to move away from home. It wasn't quite major junior where the eyes are on you, but it was junior hockey. And, um, you know, there was a few 20-year-old guys kicking around the room. There was 20-year-olds in the league that were trying to score on you and, and, and move on in their career. So it really was a perfect stepping stone for me before I went to uh, Kootenai and, and ended up playing in the Western Hockey League. Did you feel like that was the hardest step of your career? I mean, for me, I felt going from Bantams to junior hockey was by far the biggest thing I'd done. And that was just tier two in the States. But I went from playing with like my high school team and Bantam guys at like 14, 15 to playing with 20-year-old Matt. But did you find that similar? I, I, you know what? For me, it was a little different. I, I was kind of naive at that age, I feel like. I, I, I didn't really realize till I graduated to major junior how old these guys really were. I, I mean, off the ice, they all did their own thing. I wasn't allowed anywhere near them. But on the ice, I felt like, wow, hey, they're all shooting the puck the same. Uh, once I got to major junior, you could really see the, the upper echelon players, how much better they were than the rest of us and how much you had to work to if you wanted to get to that level. Uh, for me, at least, the stepping stone was was major junior to pro, and that was the, that was the first time I really experienced. Oh wow! Like these guys are better than me, and, and these guys shoot harder, and and this is to put food on the table. So a little different than you, my stepping stone for sure was junior to pro, and just how much. Um, the game changed for me and that was going to the east coast that wasn't even i wasn't playing in the american league it was it, it was major junior to east coast which should be an easy transition for me that was probably the hardest one i had the same thing i went from college to, to the coast i'm actually glad i spent two years there though because i felt like it got me ready when i got to the american league to grab that and run with it so you were describing your time though with the kootenai ice and we had a couple guys in common there i've played with adam cracknell i think on six different teams it feels like at this point brett sutter and i have done phpa exec board together uh first what are your memories of those guys and two what was kootenai like for you yeah well that's that's funny i get to throw cracks under the bus now because i got to play with him this year 
um, in Toronto and in San Diego. And it was the first time we've connected really since junior. So like 14 years later, we, He's we hook changed up on a the bit, same hasn't team. he? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he lets, he lets me know if I need to know where I want to go sign. He's, he's played on every team in hockey. So I, I just ask him first and he hooks me up with some details, but, uh, good guys. And, and same with Satsi. It was, it's great. We, he was in division this year with Ontario and we were in San Diego. So, uh, I got to, to chirp him a little bit and, uh, it's fun to see how guys have changed. Like we were all just kids and, and cracks. So that's anybody in junior. It's, it's your kids. And you look back 14 years later, holy cow, were we naive back then? We thought we had the world. And, um, you know, I, I was drafted in the third round to Ottawa. So man, was that a big deal? Like I felt like I was, I was right on track and cracks was a seventh round seven. He might even been an eighth or ninth rounder. It was, yeah, I don't know how many rounds he had He was real then. late. Yeah. <laughs> he was real late. I, uh, this guy will never turn out 14 years later. He's running the power play for our team in, in San Diego. Right. So it, it's funny how that all changes and, and works, but two real good guys that have carved out awesome careers and super happy for both of them. Man, cracks is so funny to think about because he showed up in Vegas with the Wranglers. He went through the whole Calgary training camp the Omaha Suburban Knights camp and he ends up in Vegas and he shows up with his Escalade 20 years old <laughs> and uh, like he had had a good junior career like towards the end of it scored a lot of goals and I'm sure he was thinking that he was going to end up at least in Omaha you know and so it was a bit of an eye-opener for him and I remember that just that first year and he had a really bad uh, injury too like broke his leg in Idaho one night and it was a grind for him and then four or five years later I'm talking with my friends in Peoria and he's the captain of the team I was like, holy yeah. shit, like it's Captain Cracknell. Like what happened, you know? And uh, we ended up being teammates again after that. And it was just, you know, you talk about the maturity of how guys, how they change in a hurry sometimes. And pro hockey can do that to you, right? Like you really find out what you're made of and, and what it's going to take to get to the next level. Yeah, it, good, awesome point. Like I I, I, I got a, good, a soft spot for cracks now just because we played together all year. And uh, it, It's a perfect example of a guy carving out a career for himself. He wasn't yeah. supposed to be a guy and – uh, he decided he wanted to play pro hockey, not just play ho pro hockey, but make a real good living doing it. And uh, he's he's done an unbelievable job of finding his niche of being that guy that gets dealt around every year. And I mean, it, it's well, you can laugh about it or you can make fun of him, but I don't even think it's that it, it's honorable. He's he's willing to do whatever it takes to play pro hockey, and uh, for him, it's meant moving around a little bit. But I mean, awesome uh, like awesome career that he's had, and uh, he's still kicking. Yeah, well, I mean, you're in demand when you're like that, too. People want you. But what, what struck me about him was really just how his game evolved to him being a crasher and being willing to do whatever he needed to instead of just a pure sniper. And, like, I, I love cracks, man. Like, we've shared some really good moments along the way. And, like, I think he saw me snap a driver on a on a tee box once, among other things. And just, <laughs> you know, he's married. He's got kids. Like, it's it's so fun to see guys evolve, man. And like you say, 14 years later, cause I can't imagine, like, I know what I was like in junior and the world was against me. And I, I look back, I just shake my head. I'm like, I can't believe I was like that. You know, like how much you can grow as a teammate sometimes too. It's a great example of, of perseverance, that guy, that's for sure. So during your junior time, you were also part of the infamous 2005 world championships, right? Basically the that's dream right. team for Canada. You were the backbone in the net. And you talked about your juniors in tier two where you saw probably 100 shots a night where you didn't win – or midgets, I guess, right? Where you didn't win yep. games. You had the polar opposite when you went to world juniors, right? Probably yeah, 15 yep. shots a night. I mean, how do you how do you still perform when you're not seeing a lot of action like that, especially with that good a team in front of you with all the hopes of Canada on your shoulders? Well, I always like to start my world junior stories with, you know, I'm going to be the butt of every trivia joke come, come five, 10 years down the road here is, you know, name the starting goalie for the best world junior team ever. And uh, guys will go through flurry and price and they'll, they'll go down every one. And I'm sure I'm a few down before they get to Jeff Glass, but it was, it was an unreal experience. It was so much fun uh, being there. And like you said, the, the, the hardest part about, about the team was probably trying to make it or, or then, uh, you know, stay afloat in practice because guys had just bombs and everybody was so good but um you know unbelievable memories from that that experience i i didn't ever think uh let's go back to even bantam when i'm two and 28 and uh grinding it out that hey a couple years down the road you'll be the starting goalie for the world junior team but um i kind of got on a heater uh, i started out really strong my second year 
um, I was coming off, sorry, my third year, coming off the draft. Uh, I got drafted and I was feeling good about myself. Yeah, you had, had some a good juice summer. behind you at that point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You had the confidence going and all of a sudden Feeling the you flow, come to camp. doing the bowl dance, all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get to camp and you're the big dog now because you've been drafted and, you know, you don't have to do the rookie skates. And all of a sudden I'm feeling good about myself. And um, I, I didn't get invited to any of the summer stuff for, with Hockey Canada. They had... Uh, I'm not sure if it was four or six other goalies um, that were penciled in to be the guys to come for the uh, the winter camp, and I wasn't one of them. And I just came out of the gates hot. And um, talking about Suts there, uh, Brent Sutter took a took a flyer on me at camp, and and we played Kootenay played Red Deer quite a bit then, and uh, I think that was a big thing. We there were our rivals, and I, I I owned that rivalry. I loved it. It was it was a great time, and um, so I played well. He took me to camp. I had a great camp, made the team, right out of the team. It was me and Rajan Boshaman, who I still keep in real good touch with. And um, and Satsi told me that I'd be the guy and that I was going to play. And uh, like you said, once he got in the net, that was easy. You know, I, I think I had 20-something shots, 20, low 20 shots in the gold medal game, and that was the most shots I faced in any game in the whole tournament. So it was it was a matter of just uh, staying focused. You were going to get one or two quality chances a game, and as long as you uh, – you didn't do anything silly. You, we were we had a gold medal the, the whole way. Just for the fun of it, let's see how many names you can rattle off from that roster. Go. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, let's see. Um, let's start it forward here. So I'm going to go, I think it was like uh, Bergeron, Crosby, uh, Perry, Getzlaff, Lad. I'm missing somebody on that second line. Then I think it was like Richards, Carter, Dawes, Stewart. Uh, oh, you put me on the spot now. MacArthur, Dixon. You're doing good. And, yeah, I'm getting, I guess, almost four lines. I'm Steven missing Dixon? a few guys. I'm Was sorry. Steven guys, Dixon? I'm sorry. Yeah, whoever I'm missing, I don't. Okay, let's go defense here. So it's um, <laughs> Fonof, Weber, um, Seabrook, Cam Barker, Sean Bell, Danny Sivret. Oh, I'm missing somebody else. Danny Sivret, there's a relic there. He wore a lot of jerseys, too. You know, his brother's an NHL referee now. Yeah, it, you Is know what? He wrapped us in, in the American League this year a couple games, and he came up to me, and uh, I looked at him like we, we kind of had that thing. We looked at each other, and he introduced himself. I said, no way. How's your brother doing? We had a good moment there, and sure enough, dropped the puck a couple seconds later. But it was it was awesome. Good, good guy. That's funny, man. Like that team had to be unbelievable to be on the ice for in practice, just the total skill level, like just through the roof. That's I, my favorite story was right when we made the uh, right when they announced the team, we went up north, northern Manitoba, because it was the term was in Grand Forks. We had our training camp in Winnipeg. So we took the bus and we drove up north to some city and uh, we got out there and it was before the media could get to the rink. And that was my favorite because guys were trying stuff that I, I could tell they didn't want to try when the cameras were on. You know, they'd get accused of maybe showboating or maybe being a little and they were just it was a full on pond hockey skill fest out there and once the camera showed up it was it was more you know the practices we're used to but um it was pretty cool to watch a couple guys kind of get out of their element and try a few things and man it was it was fun to be around were there any personalities in that room that looking back 14 years from now you're kind of surprised how things played out for them whether they changed or whether they became bigger than you expected or something like that I, I think there was a lot. Like you've been in a ton of rooms, just like me. You, you know how it is. Yeah, when, a couple. It, 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 yeah, <laughs> it takes a few uh, personalities to make it make a locker room. And um, you know, we had louder guys in that room. We had quiet leaders. We had all types. But um, I always people ask me who the best player was, and it, it, you know, with Crosby is the obvious answer. But he was 16 at the time, and you know, it was Patrice Bergeron was coming down from. He played the years uh, prior to that in the NHL, and it was a lockout year. So he went to Providence and played a year in Providence and joined us from there. He's a year and a half into pro hockey, and we're all playing major juniors. And he was like our quiet leader. And I, I think he actually did win MVP of the tournament. He was hands down our best player. And so you talk about personalities. Everybody, he's gone on to be surefire Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup champion, on and on and on. He was our leader. And then you had everybody else kind of fell into place after that. And... Um, you know, it was guys like Corey Perry. I think even, you know, to start the tournament wasn't really slotted in on a line. And he, he finds a, a home on the first line. And it was everybody kind of finding a home. And it, personalities kind of fit in. And, and, you know, Brent Sutter, he didn't let any egos get out of check. So it was it was one of those teams where everybody, um, 
knew that they were good. There wasn't any there wasn't any questioning skill level. It was going to be a matter of if we all slot in properly that uh, it was it was almost guaranteed we could win the gold medal. So you win the gold medal. You're a national hero basically because it's everything in the world to Canada. And Ottawa sends you to the coast. Exactly. What? Me, what I'm, you me, want to what, talk about? The, yeah, I want, to, I want to hear how this happened, man. Because to me, you would have been a surefire candidate to at least be in the American League. You're riding some momentum, and you end up in Charlotte. Which, by the way, was in Charlotte, right? It was. Yeah. I mean, good place to end up if you had to. But did you expect to end up in the coast, or was that a total shock to you? Completely caught me off guard, and it was a time when uh, you can vouch for this. Like it, it's very common. In fact, I would encourage most goalies to play at almost every level and realize, you know, how hard it is to play pro hockey. And, you know, work your way up. It, there's there's a lot to be said for that. But when me and you were going through it, it was it was rare. There was the East Coast was more of a. It wasn't a development league like it is now. It was more of a league where hey, you know, you can't quite make it. You go there. And, maybe 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 we'll call you up if we if someone gets hurt and like there was no plan yeah yeah exactly. that was well that was me that was like when i got there i'm like my goal is to make the american league that's what exactly. i was thinking because i wasn't even on an nhl deal i wasn't like you but yeah so it was different back then it was and, and so i i you want to talk about another summer coming in hot so i get to ottawa's camp now probably with the same attitude if not double and you know canadian market so hey he hey the kid might make it out of camp for the Ottawa Senators, I'm thinking, oh, right, reading all these articles about myself, how good I am and how sweet I'm. Okay, hold on, Jeff, right? Like, not only are you not going to play in Ottawa, we're going to send you to Binghamton. And it was at the time, uh, Billy Thompson, I think, and it was Kelly Guard. Kelly Guard, yeah. And, and they were light years ahead of me looking back. Like, I was so green and fresh. And I, yeah, athletic ability maybe, but, like, there's a lot to be said about pro hockey and how to stop pro hockey hockey pucks. So we, I had a lot to learn. So I went – from the NHL to an American League camp, so fast to the East Coast, it made my head spin. I was in Charlotte, and I remember thinking to myself, what did I do to deserve this? And it, it was not no fault to my own, and it was it was the best thing for me was going there. But at the time, I wasn't ready for it at all. And, and so it was time to uh, really start from the bottom and start chipping away at it. Were you able to enjoy the experience, though? Because some guys get there, and you can tell they're just sour about it. They don't want to be there, and they don't embrace it. Were you able to go the other direction and make good on it? Yeah, you nailed it. It was like Charlotte, what a spot. So you get there. We had an unreal group of guys. I still keep in touch with a few of them. And um, it was like, hey, Jeff, you're living in Charlotte. <laughs> the weather's great. We went to a couple Carolina Panthers games right off the bat. Um, you're playing pro hockey. We had the brand new rink right downtown there in Charlotte. Everything was great. Like, what do you have to complain about? So, like, take it as that view. And it really started to actually kind of carve out my – I don't want to say personality, but my perspective on life and hockey started right there where it's like, here, you have two choices right now. You can either complain about living in Charlotte or you can, you know, enjoy this and go have some fun with it. And um, I chose the latter. I decided, hey, let's just, let's see what can happen here. And um, there was a few games in the coast where I was thinking, what the hell is going on right now? Like, you know, know (laughs) absolutely. We're looking for call-ups and, you know, I think I had two or three defensemen that were healthy one game. So we had three guys called up from, I want to see men's league. I don't even know if we had a league close enough where we could get guys from. So these guys were like, listen, don't play us much. Just we can like eat a few minutes. And and we, uh, pe- one of my favorite stories was a couple of the defensemen took penalties. So we were down five on three and the coach sent out one of the beer leaguers to like kill it <laughs> off for me. And, and it was one of the, my favorite penalty kills because he was diving head first. This was the NHL for him. And he was like, I'm like, oh no, stay right in front of me. And he was diving around blocking shots, ended up killing it off. And, I mean, like that. It was fun. Like, what a story, right? I'm sure you got that guy a couple beers after the game. <laughs> we we definitely went for the beers after the game, and uh, it was good stories all around. Yeah. Well, that year did give you the chance, though, to get to Binghamton the following season. So it was a good enough year that you you know you won games, you played well, and you get to bingo for another three years after that. And you talk about some personalities, though. I mean, you played with Yablonski and Kartner and. I mean, Denny Amell was there, I think, on a three-year American League contract, which had never happened before, something like that, right? So (laughs) what are your memories from Binghamton once you got there? And you also had Tom Severance. we got to mention him. Great, incredible equipment guy. I love Seve, but he was there with you. So tell me about your time in Bingo. Yeah, bingo, bingo was really like it, – it It shaped who I am as a hockey player. I, 
I uh, I learned a lot in Binghamton. So I, I got called up for a couple of games that year in Charlotte, um, and I got a taste of it. And like you said, you walk into Bingo's room, and I'm glad you brought up Seve because first guy you're going to meet is Tom Severance. And I'm like, all right, heard all about this guy. Quite what a presence. Beauty. Yeah. Yeah, quite a presence. <laughs> what a beauty. He's like, all right, Glasser, what do you need? And um, at the time, I was a, a coho guy. There you go. I'm dating myself. And I was, I was a coho guy, and he's like, yeah. all right, no, no, no. Um, well, you know, Todd Brown here has got Bauer gear. Maybe you're interested in that. And Sevy was the first guy who really opened my eyes on the fact that, like, in junior, it was like you got option A and maybe option B. But, like, why do you really need option B? If you're fine, like, you're fine. It's hockey equipment. And I was cool with that. Uh, now it's pro hockey. It's like, well, this guy uses Vaughn and this guy uses Bauer. And Sevy was great. He's like, whatever you need, I'll help you out. And so now all of a sudden the kid me is like, well, I mean – Let's, Let's try it, it a all. Shot. We're at the Let's equipment buffet. I think year two, I had a home and away set of pads. I had a red set and a white set because Sevy gave me the green light. Which looking yeah, back, for like a twenty, you're right, a twenty-one year old kid, not what you need to be doing for him, right? But because um, we used to get used to get like one set of pads and a set of gloves for junior for an entire season. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm telling Sevy to only pack the red set on the road, right? Like real eye opener. But anyways, yeah, Sevy was the man. So I walked in. To that room, my first full year was me and Kelly Guard. We actually roomed together uh, as well, and and it wasn't a good year on the ice as far as wins and losses. But we, you know, it's it's pro hockey. You can't always be uh, on a winning team, and there's enough movement in the American League where you start to realize real quick that um, a piece of humble pie is good for everyone. So I again, I think I had something like a four or something goals against average, and you'd get 40 shots a night, and it was just how life was in Binghamton. We weren't yeah. very good, but you're grinding, um, man. You grind, and, and that was it. It was year two of an entry-level deal, so keep grinding, and and that was it. So um, year two, I played with some Denny Hamel, a couple guys like that that just awesome guys, but, yeah, personalities to say the least. And then I want to say it was year three or year – yeah, year three there. Sorry, year two there, year three pro, um, a couple of the heavy hitters showed up, and that was like Yabo and the Karks and the Danny Blod. Um, you know, you, you tell stories to some of the guys now in the dressing room, and – it's just such a different game. Like there, there was no veteran rule, so you know you could have unlimited amount. And, and these guys weren't just tough; they were like real tough. And as a goalie who's trying to stop the puck in a smaller rink, for anyone who's been to Binghamton, it's not exactly a, a lot of space to mess around out there. So it's, it's actually it, right now it's the only rink I think in the league that's short. Because Syracuse used to be five feet short, and they lengthened it because Tampa Bay said we're not going to affiliate with you if you don't make it regulation size. And I think I Binghamton, yeah, I think Binghamton's the only one left. It's like five feet short, so that neutral zone is just tiny. That makes sense. I wish I would have known that. That makes a lot of sense because yeah, I, I knew it was a small rink, but I didn't actually know that it was the last one standing. So yeah, it it was tight in there, and you'd have you know uh, we had the Yablonski Morastis. Uh, oh. Morasti was in uh, Syracuse, Syracuse. Then, so I think we saw him like. 12 times a year and these guys would just give it to each other like twice a game times 12 and um oh my gosh like just to be around that was was insane and um me and Yabo had some good last week cross pass in Russia after that so like we'd go back and tell some good bingo stories with each other I I think one of his favorite I think we ended up winning a game in Binghamton and we came into the locker room and there was a water jug like a, a water dispenser and it was in like like 500 pieces and i remember thinking like <laughs> we won the game like what happened and it was something to do with like yabo got the scrap i don't know if it was a fan or if it was the the ref or the coach or somebody along the way and we came in after a 4-3 loss and there was just plastic and water everywhere and like in true yabo fashion he apologized and got a new one like the next day but it was like he he wasn't happy and he let the water cooler get it so I want to talk about Binghamton itself, though, for a little bit, because I I think it gets a bad rap that it doesn't really deserve. And I'll tell you why. It's because when teams from the visiting clubs drive in, you kind of go through that area by the river that doesn't look great, kind of looks bombed out, to be honest, you know. But yep. the year that I spent playing there in 11-12, we ended up having a lot of fun. It's not that expensive to live there. There's several bars and restaurants downtown that I thought was a great time, like – we ended up having a lot more fun there than people give it credit for, I think. I mean, did you have the same experience? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I talked to a guy. So it, we had a really close team. And, and you have to be in those small towns. And um, 
I think you hit the, the nail right on the head on how visiting teams get an impression of a city based on a visiting locker, a locker room, uh, a visiting hotel or entrance. And that's how you just form an opinion on a town. Now, I lived there for three years, so I got a pretty good perspective of bingo. But uh, a guy like Colin Green came in right behind me, and they won. They won the championship that year. So so that, that totally changed his impression on the whole thing. And he's like, yeah, we lived downtown. It was a great city. Now, I lost for a couple of years there. So ah. all my memories were like losing memories. And I, nothing against the town. But it's, it's so funny how if you're playing in a town and you're winning or you're playing a lot or whatever, you just you form a really good impression of that place. And, you know, I played in a few spots all around the world that maybe weren't the prettiest. But as soon as the hockey goes good, then all of a sudden you come home with a smile on your face. And now... Uh, everybody at home's happy, and 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 all of a sudden your opinion of that town totally changes. So not that I have bad impressions of Binghamton, but we just couldn't win there. So it was always a grind. And that's yeah. when I look back on Bingo, I don't look at uh, super like I hate that place. It was just what a grind. Like I couldn't seem to get my head above water the whole time I was there, and uh, that will be my impression of the place. That's a tough feeling because I've had that too, where you're just absolutely fighting to stay alive. It feels like every game. And I'll be honest with you, I had that with Ottawa this year where. We were going out, and Craig and I, Anderson, were seeing legit 35 to 40. I mean, he had one night in Dallas where I think he saw 53, and that was the record for the Dallas franchise since they'd moved it from Minnesota, you know? So we're like, wow. we're seeing a lot of rubber, and you're just trying to keep it like under three goals so you have a chance, you know? And that's really hard as a goalie because you're used to that mindset of two or less, and we're going to win this thing. Well, that's normal if you're seeing 30 shots a night. You know, it's it's really difficult to play into that role where you're just getting pelted. I, I totally agree. And uh, I just I, it's so funny when your mentality changes like that and you try to keep telling yourself, well, uh, today was a three. We, we lost five, three, you know, uh, today was a four spot, but it was a good four spot. And eventually it just it drags you down. And yeah. I think the key to pro hockey or anybody that's been successful, you, I, I know you know this story, is, is just finding a way to be positive through those grinds because it, it happens to everybody in the career and it sinks some guys. I think some guys, honestly, um, you know, they a couple four spots and that's that's the uh, that's the show. Good night. So, um, yeah, it, I, I, I wish I could tell you that I had all these great stories from Binghamton, but when I look back, it was one of those cities where I was like, it taught me a lot and it was a grind. It wasn't a bad experience. It was just a learning experience from start to finish. So afterwards you go to Russia and we're going to touch on that. I want to just rewind really quick because it was a kind of a, a good segue to it though, how you're talking about your gear with Sevi. And I, I yeah. always like to talk shop with this on, on the podcast because there's so many goalie geeks out there and I know I was too. And I still am like hardcore about it. What did you look for in your gear? Uh, did you have any specs that were, different unique or just what were you looking for what did you like in your stuff yeah no i i, I actually love talking gear too and i'm i'm probably a closet gear nerd i i always prided myself on trying to be low maintenance which is not something to be proud of because i'm high maintenance but i would i would try to tell everybody <laughs> i'm low maintenance and that you know i really oh, just stock this and stock that and for the most part, that part actually is true i i, I used to wear coho pads which transitioned to ccm or you you know that whole phase and uh, that was always me and so when I I started in Coho and I, my first couple of years were pro and like I said I switched over to Bauer for a couple of years uh, and the Bauer pads I tried to keep them as stock as possible but there was a phase in my career and we're going into Russia here is um, I, I hooked up with a guy Chris PQ out of Detroit uh, I started doing Eli Wilson's goalie camps for him uh, there and I I did them for. 12 or 13 years in a row there it was quite a few years and um and peaks helped me he was the first guy that introduced me to modifying gear and how you could actually change the way you wear your gear because i up until that point and this is like four years into pro hockey it, it came out of the box i put it on and that was that and it, it really never changed anything and i went from that to like almost the polar opposite of like not one piece of my gear wasn't modified if it was from like knee stacks i used to land on this like super thin knee stack and so i went to a crazy high knee stack and i i changed all my strapping setup around and i had a i had a super narrow leg channel and it went super wide for a while and moral of the story being i, I completely did a 180 on my gear probably about year five or six of pro one of my first couple of years in russia and I've come back full circle now. So now I've, I, after Russia, I came back and I'm back in my CCM gear. And um, I actually tell the CCM, I tell Jerry every time, like, just 
as basic as you can keep it. I want the newest technology. I want you to tell me what the newest technology is because I'm not super aware of why I'm wearing this, but you're right. That feels way better on me than the set you sent me before. So um, that's kind of my evolution of goalie equipment. I, I, I really do think that um, the way these companies make the pads now, you can almost custom a pad any way you want right on the customizer. If you're into whatever, if you're into a tight old school pad, go for it. If you're into state-of-the-art no straps light as it can be you can have that as well so um i think goalie equipment's come a long ways and now almost anybody can have it exactly the way they want it i'm kind of in the same boat that i always wanted the newest technology i could get and i would tell them that i'll try it you send me anything i'll try it and then we'll modify from there but i think that it's almost got to the point where it's so optimized that my stuff really doesn't have a lot of custom element to it. Like there's a couple of little things, maybe a strap here and there, but when it comes to the actual build of it, it's pretty close to stock and that surprises people considering how much you can do. But what do you think of the guys though that are really stuck in the past that aren't willing to update with technology? Does it, as a guy like, who's kind of like me that wants the new stuff, does it just, does it kind of irk you and bother you a little bit to see somebody just too stubborn to change? Oh, it drives me nuts, and, and like I'm glad you brought that up. It's it's it. it I, I'm I'm a stock guy. I want to say, or closer to a stock guy than most. And like you said, you 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 nailed it right there. Everything is. You're gonna send me a pad that's we, let's call stock. It is unreal. So what are we doing here? But with that being said, we don't all need to go back and order retro sets now. Just because I played ten years ago doesn't mean my pads have to be ten years old, right? So um, there was guys and. And, and hey, credit to them, but like one of my, I, I played uh, with Kerry Ramo uh, with the Toronto Marlies. He was there and he was rehabbing a knee injury. I was and, in Tampa and, with him. Yeah, sure. He, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. There you go. So he, he, he was a guy who like, he wore these old school Bauer pads and he had a ton of straps in the back and they were cinched up super tight. And if he did, if he wasn't careful, he'd land on the face of the pad. He wouldn't land on the knee stack. And I remember like asking him and, and credit to him because, man, he like, he like we both can attest to that. He carved out a pretty good NHL career and whatever. He's he did it, but I'm like, Kari, what are you doing? Like that was like 2016. Yeah, this was this was yeah. like two years ago, three years ago. He he would wear a pad that looked like it was made for 2002, and I don't even know if I wore 2002. I wore my pads that tight, but they would be cinched on, super tight. And he liked it because. Uh, he liked to move around the crease. He said he wanted to have complete control and command of his pads, and he felt that loose straps didn't give him that. And, and you try to justify with a guy, well, no, like there's elastics and there's, you know, even if this one's tight, this one can be loose, and they're still super responsive, and, and you don't really get much back. So it was, it's interesting how guys are, I don't want to say set in their ways, but guys do it different, and uh, I guess there's tons of different ways to, to play goal. My similarity to that was when I was in Jersey and Marty Brodeur was rehabbing an injury and I was up for him and we're in the locker room together and Marty and I would talk about gear more than anything else because mine was really modern and a lot of the guys in the Jersey organization that had grown up in it had really unmodern, old, just whatever they'd get off the shelf where I was wearing new stuff. I was a geek yep. about it. I came from outside the organization. So Marty was asking me an awful lot though about knee stacks because he didn't even have them yet. He had the sure. old school pads without him. And then yeah, I think it was the next year I look at it and he's got knee stacks. And I'm like, maybe I could take credit for one thing about Marty Brodeur. Maybe I influenced that in some way. I probably didn't, but it makes me happy to think that maybe somehow I played a small part in his career, you know, like <laughs> helping usher him into to the modern era. But uh, I, I could talk gear all day long, but I really want to go to your time in Russia. And not just because it's Russia, but because you spent the better part, I think, of seven, eight seasons there. Um, first off, how did you end up there? How did you end up leaving the yeah, Senator's organization to go? And then once you got there, you know, what was the experience like just from a goaltending hockey perspective? Equipment, was it hard to get equipment? All those things. There's so many questions about it. Yeah, it was it was quite the experience. So starting from the beginning, I, I didn't receive a qualifying offer that summer from Ottawa. So I became a free agent. And uh, I talked to my agent about possibly going to Europe, but I was 23 years old and um, not exactly conventional for a goalie, especially at that age to head over. But um, I was open to any opportunity at that point. And coming off, like I said, three challenging years in, in Binghamton, by no means not successful, but just challenging years of, of learning the position. Uh, I got offered two spots actually in Russia and, and didn't know anything about either one. And at the time, 
you you could i remember typing both of them into google and figuring out that you know one was here on the map and one was there and uh there was like three pictures from each rink and they both looked the exact same so i picked uh, a stand a kazakhstan uh and the other option was was Chekhov vitez and anybody that's been to russia knows that uh astana now is got a reputation for having tons of imports and uh being uh it's outside of Russia. It's a slightly different culture than the culture in Vitez and nothing wrong with the one in Vitez, but it was, it was a great decision for me to go to Kazakhstan because I ended up meeting with, I think there were seven of us imports and you get over there and all of a sudden now it didn't feel so weird. And, and I, I'm super thankful for those guys when I got over there because I didn't speak any Russian. I didn't have, I'd never really been overseas to that point And now I'm in Kazakhstan, but um, to what you're asking then now the hockey parts, you show up and you're a little bit overwhelmed with, with Russia and Kazakhstan, the whole the whole country and the whole atmosphere, and oh wait, you need gear, right? So um, the the team would always cover your gear. Uh, you were just responsible to get it. So a little different than over here it would be uh, in the summertime. I'd order two or three sets depending on where I was at in my goalie gear phase, <laughs> uh, and then I'd bring it all over with me at the beginning of the year. So. Uh, we laugh, my wife and I, we, we, there'd be times we had a, we have a big dog. So there'd be a dog, there'd be, you know, four or five hockey bags full of equipment. Uh, there'd be one or two suitcases for her, one or two suitcases for me. We'd show up to the airport, you know, looking like a hockey team and there would just be two of us traveling. And, you know, the people at the, the air counter would always look at us, where, where are you guys, what is going on here? And, and this was always, you know, a funny thing. And it was the gear that took up all the space. Tell me about getting your dog into Russia, though, because I explored Europe for a lot of years, and I was thinking, man, I can't even get my dog to Russia. How'd you pull it off? That, that, the dog was worse than the gear. It was the hardest thing I've had to do was get a dog into Russia. And we've, oh, I got a story from every single – I got seven different Russia stories <laughs> about getting the dog in seven different ways, but it was not easy. And getting it out was even just as hard, if not harder. So, you know, it was a matter of – we have a Bernice Mountain dog who's 100 pounds, oh. and, and his his kennel looks like two bathtubs stacked on top of each other. So it's not like we're we're transporting a little Shih Tzu. And so you get to the airport, and you gotta assemble this crate in front of somebody, and then they take him, and he goes to cargo. And um, next stop for him was Frankfurt, and then he'd hang out there for the night. And they take him out. They have like a dog hotel that. Uh, apparently they feed him. I, I like to think that everything went well, well back there, but I have no idea. But, uh, you know, one of my favorite ones was my wife in Frankfurt then would have to uh, go and you could go, you weren't allowed to see the dog because they were quarantined, but you could go check on him and say, hey, you know, well, all right, yeah, they're good or whatever. It's alive. And, this is good. Yeah, it's alive. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. We still have one. And and, uh, and they, they said, well, no, the plane that you guys have booked from Frankfurt into Russia the actual hole in the airplane won't fit your kennel. Like, I don't know what you guys, how, who booked this for you, but it was the, the, the hole, the cargo hold isn't big enough. Uh, well, now what are we going to do? So she calls me in tears because I'm already over there and like, hey, we got to go back to Canada. They're not letting us on the plane. And I, I don't, at this point, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I get a call a couple hours later and she's like, I'm on the plane. How, well, what happened? Well, they, they in Germany they allow. I don't know. I hope I don't get somebody in trouble for this, but they they allowed her <laughs> to disassemble the kennel into two pieces. They gave her a vest. They let her walk out on the tarmac with the dog on a leash. They put one part of the kennel up up the uh, ramp into the airplane. She walked up the ramp with the dog. They put the dog in the kennel. They assembled the kennel inside the airplane around the dog and took off. Well, good in theory, but now once we get to Russia. You're, the kennel's stuck inside the plane. Like, it has to be disassembled again. So um, if we were fluent in Russian or if we had somebody on the ground in Russia, this wouldn't have been so difficult. But now, uh, six hours later, she shows up and I'm there. And um, in Russia, you'd always have a driver who turned out to be your life assistant. So he came yeah. in with me. Um, and now we had to explain to the counter that my wife has to go back onto the plane disassemble the kennel into two pieces and then walk the dog off the actual physical plane. And, um, it was, it was a tough conversation, but Hey, he made it. And it was stories like that. And they were, they were never ending in Russia. That is unbelievable. So the hockey aspect of it though, you, you mean, you had a great first year, second, you had a great years period in Russia. And so did you find that your game from North America translated really well to the, to the league over there? Like, were you able to seamlessly enter it like that? And, you know, you'd had those tough years in Binghamton. It must have been a great feeling to go over there and have success right away. Yeah, it really was. And um, I think it was just a fresh start and, and tons of credit to uh, to just all the people I was around over there for 
a welcoming me and and b making the transition so easy because i was just looking for a new opportunity and um you know a guy i really idolized at the time was ray emery so he came over the year prior to me uh and he played on a team there uh, at lat matishi and and he was an all-star and he went over for one year and he was an nhl guy before that and he was in high high demand after that so I, I said to myself, all right, well, maybe I, I won't quite get the demand Ray Emery did, but if I go over with the right attitude, I could probably turn this around and, and flip back. So I signed a one-year deal with an option. Uh, and it wasn't Christmas time before they wanted to extend me. And at that time, as soon as you have success, it's a new environment, perfect, right? Like what, what more you can speak to this? When, when you're having success in a spot and someone offers you an extension, well, what are we doing here? Like, that's exactly what I was going for. And let's be honest, it's probably for pretty good money over there too, right? Exactly. It was. It was, it was multiple, multiple times more than what I was making back home. And, and, and it was to keep playing on a spot where I was, A, happy, I was having success. So I started looking big picture and saying, well, yeah, like there's no reason for me to rush back if this is going well. And uh, as the story goes, it was literally seven years of that in a row of just – uh, they were never ever like two or three year contracts. They were always just a one year extension or, you know, whatever. And it kept being a little bit better opportunity, a little, uh, different city maybe, or a different country to explore. And it kept being a great option. So when I went over there with the mentality of, Oh, I'm just going to flip this around. I ended up really enjoying it, meeting people that, you know, are lifelong friends now and, uh, turning into seven year career in Russia. Like I never would have thought that. And so, um, it was only year seven after having seven years of success that my agent said to me, he's like, Hey, I'm just doubling back on this. If you do want to go try to play in the NHL, you know, you're 30 years old and you can try when you're 35, but it's going to be very hard. You might have a chance at 30 if you want to give it a shot. And, and that was the only reason why I left that league is because I only went over there to try to come back and, and I ended up enjoying it so much. I stuck around so long, but if I didn't leave when I left, I, I don't think I ever would have had a chance to come back. It's awesome you got to embrace it. And it's also awesome you got to pad your bank account a little bit because we all know that that's a huge part of it. It goes into it. But there is something to be said, though, for when you're happy, why change it up? And that's something that even my career people look at and they think, why have you played in so many places? And I said, it's just the way my career went. It wasn't because I wanted to change. I just never had an opportunity to keep signing or doing long-term contracts with people. And I I always had kind of wished it was like the one – regret that I have that I didn't have some stability like that. It just would have made things a lot easier in a lot of different ways. You know, look at us, like going around to all these cities and, you know, you went through that for a long time in Russia and then you come back to North America and next thing you know, you're kind of back in the blender a little bit, right? Like you didn't end up with the Rockford Ice Hogs right off the bat. You took a layover in Toronto. What was the process like in 16, 17 to coming back and deciding you wanted to do that? You know, what was your level of acceptance when it came to what type of option, what type of, you know, contract and opportunity you were going to get that it felt like it was right for you to do it? Yeah, you nailed it. And it's it's so funny um, hearing you say those stories about its stability. That's the one thing that I've I've often dreamt about was just a two or three year contract anywhere, right? Because what you do is is you play your whole career on one-year deals. And a one-year deal, uh, maybe in the outside, oh, that's a year of stability. But really all a one-year deal does is set you up for a couple months of preparing for that team. And now all of a sudden you're starting to flip the mentality to next season again. And, you know, where am I going to be? Instead of thinking, all right, let's play this year out, you're thinking if I start well, well, maybe they'll extend me or maybe I can get a long-term deal somewhere else. So, yeah, stability is a a kind of a funny conversation, but yeah, going back to your original question, tr- the whole thing coming back was my, my agent said, you're going to have to check your ego. And, and that meant um, contract wise and um, opportunity wise. And, it, you know, I'd love to be one of these guys that went over there and played the KHL and you have six or seven teams offering you one way contracts to come back. But the reality of it was, is um, my name had kind of been lost and there was teams that were willing to give you a tryout. And if you want to come try out and, and, and uh, put your name back in the mix, well then by all means, well, we'd love to have you, but by no means are we going to offer you a position right off the bat because we really don't know where you're at. Yeah. So I was very, very thankful and lucky for the Toronto. And, and I've said this several times, like they, they were like, yeah, by all means come to camp and 
you know, I think I was cut like three or four days into camp, which which is fine. I, I totally get that. But it Come was down to camp, to we got sixty other goalies and players anyway. They have huge camps for the Marlies every year. Like they're known for it, and then they get to playoffs, and they've got like three buses because of all the black aces too. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's exactly that. And it, you know, I got to. I, I, they started right with the Maple Leafs, and they gave me like number eighty, I think. And I was like, oh, this is not good, right? Like if I'm number eighty, like that's a long ways down the chart. But fine, I went to Marlies. We did a tour, blah blah blah. When I got to the Marlies, um, like you said, they had Garrett Sparks and Anton Bebo, and both were prospects that were, um, at the time, Bebo was actually playing very, very well, and uh, they were both really, really strong goalies, and so I was three behind them. Uh, insert Kari Rommel, maybe I'm four behind them, but I, I didn't even get a chance to play games. I was just on their practice squad, and uh, you know the Maple Leafs would trade for a guy. My job was to practice with them. Uh, guys would stick around after practice, and I would practice with them. So even though I was on the Marlies, technically I really wasn't. You know, um, a couple guys got hurt. I think Sparksy got hurt. Beeb's got. Hurt. I got into a couple games. I got two games while I was there, and was super thankful for that chance. And that led into okay, well now it's Christmas time and I have, I've played two games. What are we doing here? Right. Yeah. Cause if I want to keep going, I want to play for hockey. I got to play more than two games. And the opportunity came up in Rockford uh, with no promises, just they were in last place and um, they're willing to try some options is really all it was. And if you're willing to come in, we can't offer you anything financially, but it'll be we play a couple of games. And I said, well, geez, I mean like I'm not even playing here. So I spent a whole half season practicing and then I got to Rockford and thrown right in the fire and it was the best thing for me because I got to play games and um, the team was just you know it they were fragile they had been losing all year and um, I came in I got to play a couple games we won some we lost some but I think for them a switch up was good it was a, a, a breath of fresh air I felt bad for it, it was Matt Carruth and Lars Johansson were the other two goalies with me and uh, in Rockford and, and you know they just felt defeated I, I could see it on their faces it, and so I came in and got to play and the way it worked was Scott Darling was uh, he was having an outstanding year and they were expecting to lose him uh, on free agency and the whole thing was coming up. We had to protect a goalie for the Vegas draft and da, 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 and I found a niche and yeah. all of a sudden Chicago offered me a deal uh, and it was a, it was a deal where yeah you get to come play in Rockford again next year but the, basically the thing was we need to protect Corey Crawford because we're going to lose Scott Darling. Yeah, and there were a couple of those deals too. I think uh, I think Thomas McCollum got one of those. Right, and I think maybe Tukarski, but there was like two or three or four guys that got two-year deals that essentially they were going to be the guy that was exposed in the expansion draft, and they were American League guys that got really good contracts just so teams could protect themselves. So congratulations, that's great. No, and, and I, I totally, I totally took advantage of the system. So yeah. it was the break I needed, and uh, so they offered me this deal before Christmas time. Uh, sorry, before Christmas time, before the trade deadline, and. I, all of a sudden, I'm on an NHL deal, and okay, well, now this is starting to look more like what I pictured coming back. And you're um, playing well too. I mean, yeah. be, oh, this is this is a good scenario. You could feel building a little bit, right? Exactly. You're starting to kind of have some confidence, and uh, it's all starting to go in the right direction. And sure enough, Scott Darling breaks his finger, uh, and I got the call, and that was the coolest thing ever. Was you know, I went from practicing in Toronto, and not to any fault of anyone in Toronto, just the just the scenario, what it was. Um, to all of a sudden I'm backing up Corey Crawford and we're, you know, we're in the United center. Or we, we, we were traveling to Joe Lewis. We're doing all this stuff. And I, I'm like, wow, did that happen fast? Right. But it, it was, uh, it was a matter of sucking it up, I guess, and coming back with the attitude that, um, I don't even know if I was seven or eighth on the depth chart in Toronto when I got there, but, um, chipping away at it, getting a chance, make the most of your chance. And, and there you go. And then you turned into one of the best stories in hockey in the last five, six, however many years. Because at what were you, thirty-one? You I think make I was, your NHL debut, yeah. thirty-two. Thirty. I was going to say thirty-one, thirty-two. Yeah, I was right in there. I mean, I'm looking back on it, and people ask me about my grind getting there, and I was like, hey, I think I was 25 when I played my first game, and yeah, it was pretty roundabout. I didn't have an entry level and things, but I can't imagine grinding for the better part of. 12, 13 seasons before you finally get the chance. What were your emotions like when you finally got the call? And then, I mean, you end up playing 15 games, but tell me about that first game, that first start experience for you. Yeah. Well, I guess it takes 13 years to build a real good story, but it was, um, it was awesome. So I, I started the year in Rockford there. 
I got, I got called up for seven games finishing the last story and never got to play in one, which was fine. I, I totally understand how that works. And uh, it was cool just to be up with the team. And so the next year I come back with high expectations. And uh, you know what? They, uh, JF Brube was in the mix. Anton Forsberg was in the mix. And I, I'd say I was a healthy four in the organization. And even Colin Delia was coming up behind me. So um, it just you slot in where you do. And um it is what it is. So at Christmas time, Corey Crawford went down, and at the time, nobody knew what it was. I just know that I was at home. Uh, I flew back to Calgary for Christmas, and I was enjoying Christmas with my family in every sense of the word, eating and drinking anything that I could see. <laughs> and I get back on the plane on the 25th at night uh, to fly back to the Chicago airport and then drive to Rockford. And when I landed, yeah, the, the best the best way to describe it, you know that feeling as soon as you get back into service, you're just – just moments from touching down on the ground and your phone just starts to blow up and you're all right, I missed something here, right? Yeah, it's going I, off like I, a slot machine. Something weird's happening. Something's up here. And yeah. I'm thinking, if you've played oh, pro man. hockey for long enough, you've had this moment at least a couple times. Right. You just forgot to turn your phone off and the service was on, but you just reconnect with the service and bam. And it's missed call from the GM in Rockford, missed call from the head coach, missed, 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 missed. Okay, so all right, what do I do? So you check your voicemail. You're still on the ground taxiing to the airport. And it's like, hey, Call me, call me. So I call him back um, on the airplane, and it's a small little airplane. He's like, hey, you got to get to Rockford. You got to get your stuff. And this is like midnight now. I don't want to say I'm hungover. I don't even know if I'm at that stage. I'm just tired. Was it, was it Bernie food. that was Was it Bernie that was calling you? It was Mark Bernard. Okay, yeah. so, Mark Bernard, so Mark Bernard's an excitable guy anyway, so I'm sure he was really giving it to you at this point. Like, you got to call me. You need to call me now. Right? <laughs> it, it was exactly that. It was, how come you haven't returned my calls for the last four hours? Yeah. <laughs> and and I need you, like, yesterday to, like, get to Rockford. So I explained to him where I was and that and we had a practice in Rockford at, like, whatever, 10 o'clock on, on Boxing Day, and I think we are actually busing somewhere for a game fine. So I'm like, well, I can meet you back at the at the rink like in like an hour, and he's like, make it 45 minutes, and you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. So it was so I I ripped back to the rink, uh, grabbed my gear, and then it was like an 8 a.m. charter to Vancouver uh, the next morning with the Hawks. So I had to go right back to the airport I came from. I just flew from Calgary to Chicago, and I'm back on the plane like eight hours later, and I'm flying to Vancouver. So whatever, whirlwind of time. We get to Vancouver. Uh, Everybody else had some Christmas cheer, I think, too. So we laid an egg in Vancouver, and that, the writing was on the wall right then. I was like, oh, I think we lost 5-1 that night, and we flew. We had a back-to-back with Edmonton. So we flew to Edmonton right after the, the game, and at this point, I'm thinking, yeah, this might be it, and, and Jimmy Waite came and found me at the elevator. It was like 2 in the morning by the time we got there. I said, hey, you're starting tonight. Um, just and Edmonton's right down the road from Calgary too. So that exactly. So now it's like, all right, it's two in the morning. My daughter's like three, four months old at this time. So I knew if I fired my wife a text message, there'd be a feeding at some crazy hour in the morning where she'd get back to me. So she got back to me real quick. Um, don't worry about the family and friends. I got all that. We'll all be there. Go play. So I got up, did my morning skate. Um, did an interview where people were just like happy to see me because I was in my home province. Like, can you believe it? You're in the NHL. Nobody knew I was starting. Uh, that the Hawks kept it real hush hush till game time. Uh, came out first. We're up three one in the game. Everything was going great. Uh, gave up too late to make it three three. Went to overtime and Patty Kane got one for me in overtime. So, oh, um, man, like, great. just an unreal feeling. Uh, I got a picture here at home where. You know, he's pointing to me down at the other end because uh, it, it just meant everything to me. I think the guys were all laughing. I was getting ready before the game, and um, Brent Seabrook asked me, all right, class, when was the last time you played in the NHL? I said, last time. This is the first time. This is and, it, boys. No, nobody really <laughs> knew the story, so it was, it was pretty cool to uh, get into the game. And, and then we won the first one in Edmonton just a couple hours from my hometown. And, um, yeah, just, just an awesome story. Were you there for rookie party at 32 years of age? You know what? I missed it. And yeah, I'm at 30, you did. And, yes, I, I cleared say, it too. My whole career in the NHL. <laughs> I, I'm fine with not having to cough up for rookie party at 32 years old. So I was uh, I was okay with that. But yeah, they had that earlier in the year. So I was a rookie, but uh, didn't have to do that. That's amazing. What a feeling, man! And get to do it in you know that close to home and everything. 13 years that it takes to do that. Just so cool that, that happens. I had the opposite story where we were winning three to one going into the third and. It went the other direction. I think Malkin had a hat trick on me to bury us 4-3 in overtime, and it was oh, over no. in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so coming yep. out of that season, though, I mean, yeah, right, out of that experience, so you end up going back to Rockford, go to playoffs, Colin Delia's hot, 
You end up coming in. We're playing against each other. Did you think, though, that going to the Calder Cup finals was within reach for you guys? Because I thought you guys were an incredible team. and It was a hell of a series. Yeah, you're setting us up way too easy for me. And, and with all seriousness, uh, going into that series, we knew we had to get to you. You were you were playing so well then, and um, credit to you a ton. And I'm not just saying it's because you're on the podcast now, but we we had a pretty good idea that we matched up a lot better than you guys head to toe, but you were hot. And our whole game plan going into that series is we had to get to the net. We had to somehow get in front of you because if you saw it, you were going to stop it, and, and you did. And I, I think we, uh, we, we were, it turned out, I think we were closer matched than what we thought. We thought we were probably the favorite coming in. And I think you guys might've thought that too, but you guys had a lot of good players that played well our for you coach guys in that was, series. You know, and our coach was feeding the media that too. I think he called us a beat up 67 dusty Mustang or something going into the <laughs> series. So we were feeding this whole underdog mentality with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you guys, you guys played well and you especially. And so it, like you said, you nailed Colin Gilly was hot. He came in so hot and, and you guys were able to get to him early and, and, and not nothing against him. It was, no, it was just, I don't think he, he lost a game coming into that series. I think he went seven and Oh, in the first two rounds, it was out. It was unreal how good he was playing. And, and you guys found a way to just, just one goal here and there. And, and it, it happens to all of us. And so yep. uh, getting to play, it was the first time I think we played against each other. I ever. don't know how long, but yeah, it might've been ever. Like us. It was the first yeah. time we'd ever played against each other. No kidding. And so, yeah, so we got to actually play a couple of games and uh, never forget that double overtime game where you guys oh. got one and, and that was it. And so, I mean, it was it was so much fun to play and and, um, and I was happy for you. And after playing in Toronto earlier and now playing against you guys in the conference finals, it was exciting to watch the, uh, the AHL finals that year and see what was going to happen. Yeah, we gave it our best. That team was an absolute wagon, though, man. <laughs> That's I'm looking at this, though, and how throughout your career, I mean, you really didn't play a lot of playoff hockey, though, you know? Nope. And in Rockford, you played those couple games, but it wasn't until this year that you really got to carry the mail in playoffs. And I know you got a taste of it the year before with Rockford, but for you, what was the feeling like with – Everything on the line like it is in playoffs, getting a chance to play, carry a team, and go deep into playoffs like you did with San Diego this year. Yeah, you nailed it. I, I remember the press release came out. It was my first AHL playoff game. I was like 32 years old, and I played You know, I played with the Hawks that year. And is this really my first? And I thought back, yeah, no, we were terrible in Binghamton. We weren't even close to the playoffs. And so uh, I played a few playoff series in Russia, which is um, a different story just because of the matchups there. are so tough in the first round. If you're not... If you're not a wagon, you're the other team, and we were the other right. team over there. So um, tough matchups in Russia, but this was the first time where I was like, "Wow, two evenly matched teams. Um, here's a chance to play some games and play for keeps." And um, I love playoff hockey. It was so much fun to play, and I wish they would all be like that. We all do, but um, so that was a great little experience for me last year. And then this year, um, it's a very similar situation, eerily similar. How. Uh, Kevin Boyle caught fire this year, and, and it's fun watching these guys catch fire because they, like, can't miss. And I think he won 12 in a row, and credit to him because it was like there was nights where he wouldn't get a lot of shots and he'd come up with the one big save. And then there'd be nights where he'd have, like, 40, 50 shots and he would be unreal as well. And he did it every different way. And he was hot, but going into the playoffs um, – we realized it's the best of five in the first round and, and things happen fast. And our coach told both of us that, Hey, if something happens, we're going to make a change. And it's no offense to either one of you. And um, three went in in the first five minutes of game one. And I got into that one. And then I got to play um, all of round one, all of round two uh, and start round three. And it was a great experience for me because I got to all of a sudden show uh, not what I could do, but actually how much fun playoff hockey is. And, and I think we all play for playoff hockey, but until you actually get to go a couple rounds and enjoy it and uh, feel your body break down and, yeah. and all those things that come along with playoff hockey, it, it's hard to describe. And so um, it was a lot of fun this year. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think the, the best part of it that a lot of people don't get to understand until they talk to somebody like us that's been far conference final or all the way to the finals is that. You know, really the first round, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're in playoffs. And then you get to the second round and it gets a little bit more serious, but there's still that, well, you know, another monthly rent. And you get past the second round, though, man, and all of a sudden it's like a light slip switch flips that guys are all in. And it's like, well, we're this far. We might as well win the whole thing. 
Like I, I have a hard time describing that to people how, at least from my experience, that's how it's been for some of the teams I've been on. Have you, have you felt that too? hundred percent. And that was exactly, you nailed it with the American league mentality of the first couple rounds, everyone's involved and every don't, I don't ever want to say that guys aren't invested. That's not the, the attitude. Yeah, but exactly. as soon as it yeah. flips to round three, it's like, hold on a second here. We're only like, we're here this long anyways. Like what's a couple more weeks. Let's win this thing. And, um, you don't have to look back. Guys step up in the dressing room and you see guys that have won Calder Cups and what it's done for their careers individually and as a yeah. team and, and what it means. And, and guys realize real fast, oh, okay, we're we're on the brink of something real special here. And you nailed it. it the intensity ramps up in that third round. and um, Super fun to be a part of. And, and and that's now where all of a sudden boys become men and you start to see who you're, what you're really about. And it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, man. There's no feeling like it. And What's next for you? Because I know you've got some things going back home in Calgary, though, that you've become a bit of an entrepreneur as well, aside from your hockey career. So, you know, where do you see yourself even four or five years out from now, not just particularly in the next six months? I've been one of those guys. July 1, for some reason, I get no reception in my house here. The phone never seems to be ringing that 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 hard on July 1. It's always uh, a little later into July when maybe the phone starts to, to heat up. But uh, yeah, no, I, I still feel like I got some hockey left in me. So we'll see here. I, I'm going to keep going at it and, uh, and see where it takes me. I'm hoping I can slot in somewhere here uh, in the hockey world, let's say, for the next year or two. Uh, but touching on your point, we were lucky enough to open uh, a fitness studio here in Calgary five years ago. It was called the Sweat Lab, and I give myself a quick plug. But it was uh, it's a little – it's a spin yoga bar studio that – Another former hockey player, Matt Kinch and myself, uh, decided to do with our wives. And uh, it was kind of a side project for me while I was over in Russia. It was something for my wife to do. Um, when you go over there, there's not a lot she can do. She's not allowed to work in Russia. But we set the company up in a way where uh, a lot of stuff can be done online from her her, her point of view. So uh, it gave her something to do over there and gave me something to kind of explore and dabble in. And I wasn't sure if it was something I wanted to get into or just something to try and uh, so we actually ended up opening a sep- second location last summer in North Vancouver. Now we got two locations going and like you said, it's starting to be more than just, um, something on the side. I, I really enjoy it and, um, taking on the whole side of something to do after hockey. It might be something that I want to get into, but, uh, at this point, I'm not quite ready yet to, to do the Roberto Luongo and send out the picture of my pads hanging on a, <laughs> on a phone line. But I, I, I'm, I'm definitely enjoying the last couple of years of my career here and we'll see where it takes me. Awesome stuff. We had so much in common. So just getting the chance to talk to you is really cool because I'm sure we could go on forever, but Jeff, thanks a bunch. Best of luck in the future and I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy it. So thanks again. No, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, best luck to you in this. This is uh, this is pretty cool. I got a lot of time for any other goalies out there, and uh, I, I really enjoy what you're doing here. Have fun with it. Thanks, man. Just a couple of relics. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.